Good morning, everyone. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. And I want to begin this morning by doing a TikTok challenge. Um, I will assure you it is not going to be a dance challenge because that's not, that's not my area. Uh, we're going to play Put a Finger Down Discernment Edition. Okay, so it goes like this. If you already know how this goes, don't roll your eyes. There are some older folks here. So what you do is you open up your hand in front of you. It doesn't have to be super high. Uh, you don't have to broadcast this. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. Uh, if you would prefer, you can do it with your arms uh, crossed in this posture of openness and receptivity. <laughs> and put a finger down if at some point in your life you've asked one of these questions. How do I know what I should do with my life? How do I know what God's calling me to, if anything at all? How do I know where I should go for school? How do I know what to major in? How do I know if I'm in the right job or if I should look for a new one? How do I know if I'm supposed to be in the city? How do I know if I should stay here or move closer to family or if I should move away from family? How do I know what to do with this relationship? How do I know if I'm supposed to be with this person, if I should marry this person? How do I know I'll end up with someone? How do I know if I should try to have kids or adopt or foster? If you're a parent, how do I know how to be a good one? How do I know if my kids will turn out okay? How do I know how I should spend my time and energy with whom and doing what? How do I know what to do with this ailment, this addiction, this anxiety? How do I know if I'll be okay? How do I know if we'll make it? How do I know what to do about church? Do I stay or do I go? How do I know what faith looks like for me now? Now, I did stack the deck in my favor. <laughs> I, see one, I see one finger left. But I did stack the deck in my favor because I asked 20 questions. The point is, you're not alone. You're not alone. And I'll tell you right now, I have asked every single one of those questions. Every single one. Some of them I'm still asking. Maybe you are too. Maybe you have other how do I know questions in your past and in your present. Uh, and there will be more to come. Questions like these, they can feel tremendously isolating, often because there's this particular weight that comes with having to make what feels like a decision that has consequences. Uh, whether the good we hope for or the, the bad that we fear. And it can feel like you're on your own in this. And I'll be straight with you, there are things you have to choose. There are decisions that are yours to hold, to steward, to make. They, there are decisions that are yours that are yours. Now, you don't have to make them on your own. You don't have to make them um, right now, all of them. But there are some decisions that are yours to discern and decide, and, and sometimes it can be hard to know how we know. Is it a gut feeling? Is it a flip a coin or randomly flip open a Bible? I don't know that there's a way to do that with apps, right? It's not a, I'm feeling lucky. <laughs> Click the button. There, there might be. I feel like there's a niche there. Market opening. We phone a friend phone a pastor. 
We're in week three of four of our series called How Do I Know? Discerning God's Leading in Times of Change. And the reason we wanted to do this series is because we know that there's a need for it. We know that as we already saw, we're, we're all asking how do I know questions. And while we may not have provided a, a yes or no answer to the specific thing you might be wrestling through, our goal has been to offer a framework, a structure, a lens through which to view those questions. And so a couple weeks ago, Pastor Matthew kicked us off by reminding us about the love of God that is on both sides, that holds you on both sides of your discernment, both sides of your decision. And he gave the analogy of a buffet that God invites us into a spacious life where we get to choose, even while we can acknowledge that not everything we may choose is good for us. Last week, Pastor Lisa talked about how we discern God's voice in the midst of all the other voices, addressing the problems we might face, naming the promises of God and, and, and offering to us a posture as we listen. Here I am. Words that come from the story of the Old Testament prophet Samuel when he was just a boy, hearing a voice calling to him and thinking that it was Eli the priest. I love that story. I've always loved that story, this idea of, of God calling, an audible voice, a clear message. There have been a lot of times when my life seemed a far cry from the characters in the Bible, stories in the Bible. God didn't seem to speak to me in the same way or as clearly as he seemed to speak to the folks in the Bible, like Samuel or like King David, who when he was a young boy, he had the prophet Samuel, uh, who was then an adult, come and tell him that he was going to be the next king of Israel. Or the prophet Jeremiah. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Sometimes my journey has felt a, a lot more like Queen Esther's. The book of Esther in the, New, in the Old Testament is the only book in the Bible where God isn't mentioned explicitly, where you, you're never actually sure what God may be saying or doing. Or Daniel. He was an exile in a foreign land. He was faithful in seeking and praying to God, and yet at the end of the book of Daniel, God tells him a whole bunch of things that are about to happen. And Daniel's response is, I heard but did not understand. I heard but did not understand. Have you ever felt like you might have heard something from God but didn't understand? And then when Daniel goes back to God for clarification, God just says, and this is in the Bible, God just says to Daniel, Go your way, Daniel. Just go your way. I would hazard a guess that if you're anything like me, there is at least a part of you that longs sometimes for a clear and audible voice to tell you what to do. And so today's message is, how do I know what to do? It's a question that can apply to any situation at any level of asking. Uh, in college, I met someone who once said that they uh, weren't going to study for their exam because God had not yet told them to. I'm, I'm not making this up. And that is certainly one way to do it. It is a way to do it. I didn't pull on that thread and, you know, logical extrapolation, but anyway... But he can go, this question, how do I know what to do, he can go all the way up to, you know, what in Christian circles can sometimes be described as calling or vocation. Vocation just comes from Latin meaning calling, so same, calling. Uh, often in Christian circles, the concept of calling can be one that, that gets tied to 
full-time church or parachurch ministry. It can be seen as something that's just for sort of professional Christians. Or it can be seen as something that just, it's just for those who have privilege. If you have the time and the resources to discern and, um, you know, decide and discover, or if you have the time and the resources to pursue passions and, and purpose that get, you, that, that, that's when you get to have a calling. Everyone else just needs to work. But at the most basic level, all right, the way that I see calling, question of calling at the most basic level is simply one of answering, what am I supposed to do with my life? And I think everybody asks those questions then. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a fireman, and then I wanted to be a policeman, and then for a brief period, I wanted to be a warrior from Greek mythology, <laughs> and then a professional soccer player. Uh, I held, carried that torch for a long time. But at 17 years old, I had to decide what to do with my life. See, I'd grown up in Hong Kong and then in, uh, studied in the UK, so I grew up in the British education system, which at the time was structured to narrow your focus down so that you apply to do a particular degree at a particular university. There aren't really liberal arts colleges in the UK, which is great for people who've always known what they wanted to do. My best friend always knew he wanted to be a doctor, studied medicine, has been a doctor for almost 20 years now. Uh, not so good for me. My main subjects in high school were English, math, and German. And the way that I saw it then, I didn't want to be a language teacher, an economist, or a poet. And, and that, those were the, sort of the limitations of my imagination there. <laughs> but more honestly, at 17, I was still holding out hope of being a professional soccer player. Uh, but I wasn't quite good enough for that. So I asked God, well, what am I supposed to do? Didn't hear a clear and audible voice. I talked with my parents, and after a lot of consideration and back and forth and ruling things out, I came to a place of thinking, well, law seems like a practical thing to do, because in, in the UK, you can study law at an undergraduate level. Uh, this was also around a time that a TV show uh, first aired. It was called Ally McBeal. How many of you have seen it or heard of it? Okay, so a handful. For those of you who haven't, it, it debuted in 1997, which is dating me a little bit. But it portrays a quirky lawyer at a quirky law firm in Boston, and it makes practicing law look really fun. <laughs> and I, being 17 and having not quite grasped the concept that things in real life don't always look like they do on TV, was like, that looks awesome. Let me do that. So I applied and got in to study law, at least in part, and I would say more than half uh, because of Ally McBeal. Look at me now. <laughs> I grew up in church where people talked about discovering God's will, discovering, discerning God's plan, listening to God's voice, and I developed this image in my head of God's will for your life being like a map or a blueprint. We've talked about this before, you know, this idea that you have to discover God's will as if um, you know, it meant figuring out where you are on the map and then following God's direction you know, series style, 2.x. Or follow God's will as if there were certain uh, instructions and steps on how to construct a godly life, Ikea style or Lego style. And if you skipped a step, you'd end up with a wobbly existence and a few extra parts. And so for much of my life, I was kind of anxious. What, what if I miss God's will? 
What if I end up doing a, a job that God doesn't want me to do? What if I don't answer God's calling on my life? What if I don't marry the person God wants me to marry? What if I, if I fall off the path, what happens to the, the rest of the journey? If I skip one instruction, even accidentally, can I, can I go back and fix it? Or, or am I, do I have to go back and fix it? Or am I screwed for the rest of my life? And I wonder how many of us have, maybe not that exact image, but, but that idea of God and of God's will. I wonder how many of us have felt or feel paralyzed by it sometimes. Let me remind us, as we have been saying, God is love. Jesus is the fullest embodiment of the God who is love. When we see Jesus, we see God and we see how we're meant to be. And I say these things often because they are so key to my understanding of who God is and, and how our world works and what we might be called to. About 20 years ago, I found a book in my school bookstore. It was written by a pastor named Kyle Lake. The book was called Understanding God's Will, How to Hack the Equation Without Formulas, which is exactly what I was trying to do, so I naturally bought it and read through it. Kyle Lake referenced an analogy used by the author Brian McLaren that I had never heard before, and I'm just going to read it to you. Brian McLaren wrote, Imagine one of my sons calls me on the phone and asks, Dad, What's your will for my college major? I would say, son, I've raised you to this point in your life so you can make that decision. Yes, dad, he replied, but I want to do your will, not my own will. So please tell me what major to choose. Son, I'll say I'll be glad to help you think this through. Uh, for example, we can talk about how much you hate history and calculus and how much you love writing and business. I think I can help you eliminate some options, but I really want you to decide this. But Dad, don't you love me? What if I make a mistake? I just want to do your will, he says. But son, I'll reply, it is my will for you to make this decision. And again, I'm, I'm glad to talk with you and help you think it through, but my will is for you to grow up and make a life for yourself by making decisions, hard decisions like this one. And believe me, whatever happens, whether you major in business or art or physics, whether it goes well or not, I will be with you. You can count on that, no matter what. The point is, Brian McLaren writes, that he lives with my guidance, but not my domination. Because, and I love this, he's my son, not my lawnmower. <laughs> in that moment for me, that anxiety-inducing image of God as a blueprint maker was done away with. Now, over the years, I've had to unlearn certain concepts of God. God is control freak who's sort of moving me like a pawn on a board just for, just for kicks. Or God is like hall monitor who's just waiting for me to, to wander or, or screw up and catch me in that. And as I've gotten to learn who God is by looking at Jesus, I realize, just as we've shared in these past few weeks, that it is God's love that is central in all of this. It is God's love that holds us. It is the God who is love who holds us. And as with love which must be chosen, so also does the God who is love allow for us to choose. The question we often ask, whether with our words or in our prayers or in the quiet of our hearts, is how do I know what to do? But I think a better question is, who am I and who am I becoming? 
Or who am I to God now, and who is God calling me to be? See, sometimes we can think that the Bible is just full of do's and don'ts. And I think that's one of the reasons we can give up on it. If it's just a bunch of do's and don'ts written hundreds of years ago in a different culture, in a different setting, in different languages, well, that probably doesn't have a lot to say to us right now. The God I encounter in Scripture is far more concerned with who we are called to be than what we are supposed to do. The God I encounter in Jesus is far more concerned with the kind of people we're becoming, the kind of character we are cultivating, the kind of person we are growing into than in strictly following the letter of the law. Read the stories of Jesus. That's exactly what we see there. Now, this is not to say that what we do doesn't reflect or have an impact on who we are. In fact, I would say that it's often by what we do that we reveal who we are. But we are first called not to do something. We are first called to someone. We are first called not to do something. We are called first to someone. In Genesis 1, when we were first created in God's image, that's what happened. We were created in the image of God before we were given something to do. Let us make humanity in our image, God said, to resemble us. That comes first. And then God says, so that they may take charge and be fruitful and fill the earth. The passage that Lisa read earlier is from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words to his disciples. Uh, a lot of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount can be taken as do's and don'ts. Don't, 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 don't be angry. Don't look at a person with lustful intent. Don't make a pledge. But before Jesus gets to what to do, he starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, kind of like the constitution of God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice and so on. This is who is blessed when the kingdom of God shows up. This is who gets to experience the goodness and grace of God, not the privileged, not the powerful, not those with the resources to access the goods. And then Jesus says to his disciples, to his listeners, to the gathered masses, to those many of whom were downtrodden and poor, many of them had no prospect of access or advancement, then Jesus says to them, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. You are called to make a difference. You are called to be a difference maker, salt and light, bringing out, as it says in the message version of the Bible, the God flavors and the God colors in our world. And the reason you are called to be a difference maker is because you are made in the image of the God who is love. And you are invited to be a follower of the Jesus who is the embodiment of the God who is love. 
and who therefore shows us what it looks like to live as full a life as we were intended to. And it is a fullness not defined by the fullness of our homes or our bank accounts, not by the fullness of our calendars or our contact lists, not by the fullness of our convenience or our comfort, but it is a fullness that comes from the presence of God who is love with us and within us and among us. According to the Bible, you are made in the image of the God who is love. You are a child of the God who is love. You're part of the family of the God who is love. You are loved by the God who is love. And when we meet Jesus and when we choose to follow Jesus, we are invited to become more like Jesus, more like the God who is love, in whose image we were made in the first place. And since we can sometimes wonder what God's love looks like, since the way that we love each other is so often tainted by our own selfishness and brokenness, which is often passed on and inherited from others' selfishness and brokenness, the Bible tells us what God's love, what the God who is love looks like. And this is from 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, and so we may know that God is patient. Love, God, is kind. God is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. God does not insist on God's own way. God is not irritable. God is not resentful. God does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things. The Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians isn't talking just about romantic love, though that may be the setting that we hear this passage read. This is what all love should look like, loving your friends, loving your family, your parents, your kids, your siblings, your roommate, your folks in your small group, the colleagues, your classmates, your boss, your neighbors. This is what loving your enemies should look like. Jesus commanded that too. This is who we are called to be and become. And thus it informs what we do. Let me give one example of how being informs doing. Years ago, uh, back when I was trying to date as a single pastor in D.C., which let me not recommend it to you, I took a liking to a woman uh, I was on, who was on the soccer team that I played on. I considered it a bonus. She loved Jesus and she loved soccer. <laughs> so I asked her out, and, and again, lest the listener think it was that straightforward, it was not. There was a lot of overanalyzing and cajoling from friends. But I asked her out, and I will never forget her answer. She said she was flattered to be asked, but she had just started seeing someone that weekend, and she was, and I quote, a one-person kind of girl. So she wanted to see where that went first. Who she was, who she saw herself as, informed what she did. Now, while I was disappointed, I was also impressed by the reason that she gave and the clarity with which she expressed it. So often in relationships, not just in dating, we err on the side of assuming or ignoring or fudging, or ghosting, 
rather than just being clear about who we are and what that means we do. And honestly, it changed how I dated after that. We know what to do when we know who we are and who we are becoming. But we also know what to do because there are some things God has told us. It was in that book, Understanding God's Will, that I also learned an important distinction between general calling and specific calling. Kyle Lake would call it general will, God's general will, which is applies to everyone equally, and then God's specific will, which applies to everyone individually, right? General and specific. Now, when we ask, how do I know what I'm supposed to do, what we're normally referring to is that second one, the specific or the unique calling. What am I supposed to do? What is the one thing that God would have me do? That's the one we get the most obsessed with, the most concerned about, the most anxious about as well. It's the one that we often see in the biblical characters. They have a great calling on their lives. King David and Samuel the prophet and Jeremiah and Moses. That's often uh, what we think when we read quotes like this one from author Frederick Buechner, which I love. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Or this one from civil rights leader and philosopher Howard Thurman. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. What the world needs is people who have come alive. Now, both of those quotes I've loved, they have shaped my understanding of, uh, of how God has led me. But they are only talking about one kind of calling. What God has left for us in abundance is God's general calling, which is God's calling to all of us. God's what to do's that apply to everyone equally. Words like love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 general calling to all of us. Love your neighbor as yourself, general calling. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, general calling for all of us. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The general calling. Or in the, the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, follow me, make disciples, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's a general calling. This is what God has already said. This is what God has said to generations past and what God continues to say through the pages of the scriptures and through these words to our generation and to future generations. And when we follow these words, when we do what God has already asked of us in scripture, then I believe then we discover what Beekner calls our deepest gladness. What Thurman describes as the thing that makes you come alive because this is our creator God speaking words of life to us, speaking words that bring life to us if we listen and obey. And in fact, I, I would go so far as to say unless you're operating within God's general calling, you're unlikely to discover God's specific calling. Unless you're seeking to follow Jesus, unless you're seeking to take up your cross to be filled with the Spirit, to be living a holy life, doing justice and being kind and walking humbly with your God, unless you're treating the least of these as if they were Christ himself, putting the needs of others before yourself and putting Christ above all, it's going to be really hard to discern what specific thing God may be calling you to because you are approaching God like a magic eight ball. Because the hope of God isn't that we'd always be asking in every situation 
what do I do now? What about now? Do I study for this exam? Do you want me to breathe? The hope of God is that we would grow and grow up and mature, that we would answer the call that he's already put in front of us to follow, that we'd be becoming the kind of people who are children who reflect the likeness of our heavenly parent. So don't, please don't let the fact that you may not know God's answer to a specific question or to all of the questions keep you from doing what God has already told us. Let me offer a couple of practical takeaways before I close. Throwback to my, my Baptist upbringing, but it's, it's read the Bible. I feel like I should be more innovative. <laughs> Not just at decision times. Learn what God's already said. Learn how God's interacted with God's people before. See what God's already asked you to do. Cultivate a sense of who God is and what God might be saying. Read the stories of Jesus, the clearest picture of who God is. Learn his character. Learn his actions. Learn his words. Now, maybe you're in a season, and I know we all go through these seasons, and sometimes these seasons are longer than others, where your Bible spends more time on the shelf than open in front of you, or maybe you have the app on your phone, and it, maybe it's even on your front page, but you haven't used it in so long that it's gone back up on the cloud. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. There are those apps that you pull them back, and you're like, oh, I haven't used this one in a while. I have to download it again. It's kind of like me with some of my exercise apps. I just kind of keep it there to assuage my conscience. Like, I have the app. That means I could use it at some point. Maybe after a while you get tired of feeling guilty and either you're going to use it or you're going to move it to a folder on the back page. Let me encourage you to use it. Try it. Try to make time for it. Start where you are. You know, 10 minutes reading, listening, reflecting, praying. Learn the vocabulary of God. Learn the character of God. So you might know what you're listening for. And the second, if we know what to do when we know who we are and who we're becoming, I want you to think about a situation you're discerning right now and to ask the question, what will help me become more like Jesus? In this situation, what will help me become more like Jesus? What will help me grow in love? What will help me exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I always forget a couple. And then what I want you to do whether you do it after service, at lunch, or sometime this week, is to talk to someone about it. Someone who loves you. 
someone who desires for you to be more like Jesus. And that may be a family member, it may be a friend, it may be a sibling or a small group leader, it may be maybe one of us on staff. Um, to be honest, how do I know type discernment? It, it usually takes place in conversations rather than in sermons. And so if you want to talk, if you want to meet and talk, and we'd love to do it. Whoever it is, don't just keep it to yourself. We were made in the image of God. We are siblings in God's family. We aren't made to do this alone. Writer Anne Lamott describes her journey as a series of staggers and a lurch rather than a leap of faith. And I can say that much of my journey of discernment around any number of things has often felt like that too. There have been wonderful, beautiful, miraculous moments. I wish I could share more of them. There have been missteps. There have been mistakes. By the grace of God, there have been seasons where I was able to see in hindsight that what had seemed to me to be this wild careening back from one thing to another that didn't seem connected all fell within this broad brushstroke of what God intended for me. That's how God's worked in my life as a parent with a child. Within the general calling of following Jesus and being a disciple who makes disciples, who's seeking, though not always successfully, to walk in step with the Spirit, God has more often than not allowed me to choose because I'm God's son, not God's lawnmower, because God wants me to grow up and become a mature and responsible citizen of the kingdom, because God wants me to learn what it means to love fully and to follow wholeheartedly. What I do know is this. Every single one of us has a calling on our lives. And it is more important than, than what we do. It's more important than who or if we marry or where we live or what job we take or how many kids we have, if any, because it is to follow Jesus. It is to discover the fullness of a life more true and more real than we could ever imagine. And because that transforms our understanding of who we are and who we are called to be, be and become, it will also then transform any of the possible answers to any of the moments that you might ask, how do I know what to do? Would you pray with me?